Who's Your One? We're part three of our series entitled Who's Your One? I want to take just a moment right up front here. And if you're new to City Church, we want to just say thank you for being with us today. Thank you for worshiping Jesus with us. Some of you are new to the community. You're just checking out the church. You found us online. There's a group of people actually that watch online. And if you're watching today, we want to say welcome. Thank you for joining us on the online experience. But City Church, we want to welcome our guests today. Can we take just a moment and thank all of our new friends for being with us today? Come on, put your hands together. We're so honored that you're here. Welcome home. Thank you for being with us today. Hey, uh, uh, you'll see something up here on the stage. They look like Easter baskets, right? Easter baskets. And how many know it's going to take place in two weeks? Come on, two weeks? Easter. All right, you guys are smart. Good, good class. Right down here in the front row. They're ready, ready, ready. Hey, Easter's coming. It is the great, for us as believers, Christ followers, this is our great Great celebration day. We love Christmas. Thankful for his birth. But it's honestly, this thing is all about the death and resurrection of Christ. And we are just really excited about what God's going to do this Easter here at City Church when you bring your one. You're going to bring one. That's our encouragement today. Pray for your one. Bring your one. Invite your one. But we're just believing God to do great things this Easter. And one of the things we do, and we've done it for 20 years. So from our very first Easter experience in Altamont Springs in front of the old movie theater there at the General Cinema, from that very, very beginning, we've given away, you know, we've done the Easter egg hunts and given away prizes, and we're doing that again this year. So in between each service, we have an 8.30 service, or we have a Friday night, Good Friday, two Saturdays, 1 o'clock and 3 o'clock, and then Sunday mornings we have 8.30, 10, and 11.30. In between each of the Easter services, there will be an Easter egg hunt, and the kids will have an opportunity to get an Easter basket and have all fun kind of stuff that we do here. Because resurrection is fun. Everyone say fun. Come on, it's abundant life. We serve a God who is good to us, and we are so grateful for his grace in our life. Uh, at City Church, we like to honor the reading of God's word by standing. So I'm going to have you turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, we're going to read six verses, verses 20 through 26, and I want you to stand with me in the honor of reading God's word. Now the Bible says... Now, there were some Greeks among those who went to worship at the feast. Now, the, this is kind of unusual. I wouldn't say it's unusual, but the fact is that when the Greeks or people who weren't Jewish people would go to Jerusalem during the Feast of Passover. This was one of three feasts. This was actually the, it's kind of like our Easter. It's the holiest feast that the Jews celebrate. Even today, 2,000 years later, there, are, there will be hundreds of thousands of Jewish people that'll make pilgrimage back to Jerusalem. And, and there were hundreds of thousands of people who had made their way back to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. The Bible says they came to worship. Now, the thing being Greeks, they couldn't actually worship. They could just watch the Jewish people go into the area of worship where the temple was and where the Holy of Holies, but they really couldn't experience it. They could see it. They could experience from a distance, but they actually couldn't go in and experience worship or a true worship as the Jewish people could. In verse number 21, the Bible says, they came to Philip, these Greeks came to Philip, who was one of Christ's disciples, who was from Bethsaida. Bethsaida, and uh, my grammar teacher down here in the front row has made me say that word many times this morning. And, uh, but from Bethsaida, which was in the northern part of uh, the Sea of Galilee. It was a small little fishing community, and it was a Greek community probably 1,500, 2,000 people or so. It was, it was very close. It was about six miles from where Jesus did much of his ministry and lived in Capernaum. They went to, from Bethesda and asked him, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Sir, we want to see Jesus. 
Can you say that with me? Sir, we want to see Jesus. I want to speak to you this morning on this idea, on this concept. We want to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus today. Uh, this morning represents 20 years that Miss Laura and I, come on, with two other families, come on, all the way from Seattle, Washington. It was 20 years ago this week that City Church had its first beginning. Uh, I, I actually, I, I was the graphic artist back then. I, we did a lot of things when you first start a church. We had no people. There were three couples. There were six people and four children. And uh, this is our very first business card. And I just got to tell you, I'm so grateful for the grace of God. And as we celebrate 20 years, I just, I look, I remember that small beginning in a theater that seated 500 people. And my third week of preaching there, I had 11 adults in the auditorium, 11 adults. And to see what God has done, I'm so thankful for his grace. I'm so thankful for the lives that are being touched and have been touched and for you that are here today. And I just want to take a moment and give God all the glory and all the praise and all the honor. Amen. He is a good God. He's a good father. Thank you for being with us today. This Easter is special. 20 is a good number. I talked about 20 yesterday, but 20 is a good number. We're going to worship Jesus. We're going to pray this morning for who's our one. Come on, there's just one more. I've seen God work and move. Last year, we had more decisions for Christ. We had, we had more decisions for Christ than people that actually attended church the first year that we were in operation. Come on, give God a great big hand. And we're believing for hundreds of people to give their life to Christ this coming Easter. You got to bring them, though. You got to bring them. You got to bring your friends and family who are outside of faith today. We're going to pray today for God to move in our one. Father, thank you this morning. Thank you this morning for your grace. It's so amazing. God, you've carried us. You've been with us. God, you've enabled us even in the weak times, even in our times of failure and our, our times where we feel like we were faltering. You were there to fill our hearts full of faith. Jesus, we thank you that your name is becoming famous in this community because there's a group of believers that have gathered together to say that we love God and we love people and we want to see people know Jesus. So we're praying for our one today. We pray for all those names that are on the wall today. We pray for all those cards that we've handed out and people that have been invited. God, we're asking right now, Lord, that you will draw people this Easter. And God, for every life-giving church in this community, God, from Volusia County to Seminole County to Orange County to Lake County, to whatever the next county is. God, we pray that you will stir in churches, that there will be a move of God, that Jesus will be glorified and people will come to know you as their Lord and Savior. We love you, Jesus, and your wonderful and your awesome name. And everyone said, amen. You may be seated. Have you ever heard of a term before called FOMO? Anybody ever hear that term before? FOMO? Almost kind of a popular term, or it's a it's a term that's been popularized in our culture over the last several years. And it was actually there was a paper that was written by a very famous professor, and, and he's the one that kind of stumbled on this concept. The concept has been defined like this: anxiety that is in that anxiety that an exciting or interesting event may currently be happening elsewhere. Anxiety that's a result of an exciting or interesting event that may currently be happening elsewhere, often arise by post seen on a social media website. FOMO, the fear of missing out. In 19, uh, 2017, there was a, a concert. There was a festival that was going to, uh, supposed to take place. It was called the Fire Festival. 
Some of you have heard of this. Netflix has actually made a documentary on this. And, and there was a young man by the name of Billy McFarlane, and he had a dream. He connected with a rapper, and he had a dream of having the hippest, the coolest concert that the planet had ever seen. They were going to be the next Coachella. And so they were going to do this concert in, Bah- uh, in Bahamas, and, and they had paid some social media influencer to promote it, some very famous young women to promote it, and, and it took off like wildfire. Within just a day or two, they sold over 5,000 tickets, 5,000 tickets to this event, and people had paid thousands, tens of thousands, or had and even been a few that had bought this special package for $250,000 to go to this concert, to go to this, this festival, to be in the know. And they've tried to analyze this, and they've looked at it, and this guy made great promises. Man, you were going to stay in the poshest places in the Bahamas. You were going to eat the best food. I mean, he really built this thing up, and he had the supermodels out there, and they were doing their thing, and they were selling this, and they were promoted, and people were paying. I mean, literally, they racked up millions and millions and millions of dollars in just a very short period of time that people had spent to go to this concert. There was just one problem. It never happened. It never took place. A young McFarland, he overpromised. He's like some salespeople do that you've met every once in a while. They overpromise and underliver. And he overpromised. He he wasn't able to fulfill his obligations. And by the time these people, and I mean thousands of people, had landed into the Bahamas, when they showed up to this posh hotel, they were actually handed a FEMA tent. I mean, things didn't turn out the way that they had hoped and dreamed. And they have videos, and you can Google it and watch it. It's kind of humorous, except for a lot of people were really burned. Sociologists have analyzed, and they said there was a fear of missing out that people were driven by that caused them to to want to be part of the in-know, to be part of, or to be in the know, to be part of the crowd, to be with the who's who of the who's who. And the fact is, that never took place. We are coming up to Resurrection Sunday, and we're looking at the author and the finisher of our faith. We're looking at who's your one, the one that Jesus came for. We're looking at this man by the name of Jesus. Jesus made promises. I want you to hear this today. Jesus made promises that he fulfilled every single time. Come on. Jesus is the greatest promise keeper. In chapter 12... Chapter 12 that we looked at this morning, it's the crossroads of Jesus' life and ministry. As a matter of fact, it's the crossroad of humanity. In John chapter 1 through John chapter 11, we, we see Jesus. We, we see his life. We, we see his declarations, his messages. We see the kind of life that he lived and the things that he did and the way that people recognized him. We see the ministry of Jesus and power and glory. And in chapter 12, from chapter 12 on, we see the last week of Jesus' life. And and when you look at chapter 12, there's some really kind of cool characters that that stories have been preached to even this day that resonate in our hearts. There was the faithful, like Mary and Martha. Mary, who would wash the feet of Jesus. Martha, who would serve at the master's table. There were some special people like that. There, There was the fickle. There was the fickle, I call them the fickle and the furious. There were the religious people who had been plotting for the last several years how to kill this guy, how to get rid of this Jesus who was a rebel rouser and stirring things up. And then there were the fans. There were the crowds. There were the multitudes of people. And in that multitude, there were a group of Greeks. 
And these Greeks had come to the Passover, I believe, for this explicit purpose, to see this person, Jesus. They'd come to see Jesus. What was their motive? What was driving them that day? What was the motives of these Greeks to see Jesus? I'm glad you asked. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the the motives of these Greeks to see Jesus. In John chapter 20, verse number 12, the Bible says, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. I thought about this this week, and you know, there's a couple of things. One, I believe there could have been a little bit of that FOMO, a little bit of that curiosity. I mean, the fame of Christ had spread. There had been multitudes of people healed. People had followed Jesus. Everywhere he went, the crowds were there. I mean, Jesus could hardly get a break. For three years, it was nonstop, wall-to-wall, serving and preaching and healing and blessing and doing good. And these Greeks had heard about this, and they wanted to see him. But I believe that there was something else that attracted these Greeks to Jesus. I believe it was his powerful preaching. The Bible says that when the people heard Jesus in Mark's gospel, chapter 1, they were astonished. They were astonished at his teaching. Astonished. They were amazed. Never had anyone spoke the way that this man had spoke. This man spoke with authority. This man, when he spoke, what he said, it just rang true. It was so real. It was so authentic. It was so relational. Jesus was the master communicator. He was the preacher of all preachers. He was the T.D. Jakes, the Billy Grahams, the Stephen Furtick's, the, uh, you name them all. You can name them all. You can wrap them up all into one. He could preach them better, than them, better than them all. He was a preacher's preacher, but he was a teacher's teacher. And when Jesus spoke... He spoke to the reality. He spoke to their hurts. He came with a message of hope for his generation. No one had ever spoke like him before. When Jesus taught, he would use earthly things, earthly illustrations to represent spiritual truths. We call them parables. He was able to connect the dots. He was was able to do the etch-a-sketch. He was able to paint beautiful pictures with things that seemed to be complicated and and very difficult for people to discover. Jesus began to show them a way of life. Jesus began to proclaim a message, a message of hope, a message of transformation, a message of change. Jesus spoke with conviction. He believed what he was saying. He believed that he was the truth. He, He believed that he was the way. He believed that he was the life. He believed that he was the only way for people to have a relationship with their heavenly Father. They were attracted to his preaching. But not only were they attracted to his preaching, they were attracted to his power. I want you to look at John chapter 6, verse number 2. And the Bible says a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles. They saw his miracles. He was a miracle worker. He opened blinded eyes. Everywhere that Jesus went, the Bible says in the book of Acts, he went around doing good. He was a healer. He was known as a miracle worker. People would kind of treat him like a magician. They they would come to see him. They'd want to see if he'd put on a little magic show for him. I mean, he drew crowds of people who were just curious. They were curious because things were 
physically happening in people's lives. People who were born lame would rise up and walk. People who could not hear had their deaf ears opened. People who literally were dead were resurrected. Jesus was a miracle worker. He had great power. They saw his miracles. Luke's gospel actually says in one place, when the crowds came to him, he healed them all. He healed them all. Never been a man like this. Never been a man who who could heal people like this. Never been a man that demonstrated this kind of power over nature, over the demonic. They were attracted to it. They were attracted to the life-changing power of Christ. I can tell you today, I've experienced it and I've seen it with my own eyes. I've seen how miracles attract a crowd. But attracting a crowd and seeing people become fully devoted followers of Jesus are two different things. What I have discovered is that crowds are fickle. People will come and go. As a matter of fact, there's an old saying in leadership. It says uh, that most of the people will say, what have you done for me lately? I mean, the economy can be roaring and things can be going great. And people will say, well, what have you done for me lately? They go to a local church, and God, you know, God's used that church to grow their family and to strengthen them, encourage them, and they hit a little rough patch. And what have you done for me lately? Crowds can be fickle. Miracles are subjective, and miracles are in the moment, and we thank God for miracles. But miracles won't sustain you when you're in the darkest hour of your life. Miracles, come on, yesterday's miracle won't help you today when you need a miracle today. Come on. Uh, I've seen this happen many, many times. We need a move of God now. Come on, we need a move of God now. They saw the miracles of God. They saw the miracles of Jesus. But I believe something else. They were also attracted to his personal offer of eternal life. I mean, most of us live in the moment. We don't think of eternity often. We don't think about our last breath. We'd like to put it out of our minds. No one wants to believe that it's really going to happen. It's going to happen, but we don't like to think about it. And I understand that. It's kind of, it's a morbid thought. But the reality is there is eternal life offered by Christ. And the Bible says in the book of John, chapter 11, verse number 26, Jesus said to her, Jesus said to the woman, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live. Everyone say live. How do you find this eternal life? You believe in Christ, even though you die. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? The reality is this earthly body is going to die. But we have a spiritual being that will live forever and ever and ever. Jesus' offer to a hopeless world was a message of hope. It was a message that I've come to give you life. And today, Jesus wants you to hear this. Jesus wants you to hear this. What motivated these people to come to Christ? That he had a message of hope, a message of life, a message of transformation. And so when we see the Greeks' motive, I want you to look at the disciples' motives this morning. And and John's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 21 and 22, there are two characters there are two individuals that, that these Greeks would go to in order for them to encounter Christ. And in verse number 21, could you put 21 back up for me, please? Oh, go ahead and put number 22. Yep, there you go. The Bible says that Philip, who was a disciple of Jesus, not mentioned very often, 
mentioned just a couple of times. We don't know much about Philip, but the Bible says that Philip came and told Andrew. And in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Philip and came and told Andrew. You see, Christ had called these two guys. Christ had called these two guys to come and join him in mission. Come on, Andrew, P, uh, Andrew, Philip, I want you to follow me. You know, I, 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 like this, I like this story because these particular guys chose them and not Peter, James, and John. I mean, when you read the New Testament, Peter, James, and John, they get all the glory. Come on, they get all the, they're, they're on the, the magazine of the fastest growing church in America award. I mean, they get all kinds of credit. They're on TBN. They're on the local Christian television station, the local radio station. They're the men of faith and power. Andrew and Philip, they're back there in the back room, and they're changing batteries with the tech team. Come on, Andrew and Philip, they're over there working in the children's ministry, signing people in. Andrew and Philip are those, they're handing out buckets when it's time to pass, pass, take the offering. These are guys that aren't generally recognized, but they were disciples of Christ. They were called to be used by him. And Andrew and Philip, Andrew and Philip had a mission. And when these guys came to them, I believe they came to Philip because he had an open spirit. I mean, there was something about him. Have you ever noticed that when people are smiling, they seem happy and you're attracted to them? Right? You're, aren't you attracted to people that have a, a smile on your face? I, you know what happens when you don't have a smile? I mean, no one will bug you. People will just rock, walk right on by. Well, there's something that happens when you see a, a happy, smiling person. My wife went out yesterday, and she was handing out cards, and she was inviting people to church. And, and I know. She said, man, I, I was winning today. I handed out so many cards, so many people were talking to me. And I said, you know the reason that people talk to you is because you smile. Because she's genuinely happy. She has Jesus inside of her life. And when Jesus comes into our heart, when we're operating in the mission, when we're fulfilling the purpose for which Christ is call us, calls us, there's an openness to our spirit. We're welcoming to people. We're receiving to people. And Philip had an open heart. He had an open spirit. To people who are outsiders. In Romans chapter 15, the Bible says it like this. The Bible says, welcome and receive. Go ahead, take that verse down. Welcome and receive to your hearts one another. Even then, as Christ has welcomed and received you. Welcome and receive. Have a welcoming spirit. But not only was Philip open in his spirit, in his heart, to people who were outsiders. Let me tell you, Philip was a Jewish guy. These guys were Greeks. The Greeks would not be able to go to the same place that Philip and Andrew would be in just a few moments. They would not be able to go into the temple area to worship God. They would always stay in the outside where the Gentiles were at. But these guys wanted to see Jesus. And they looked across the crowd of people who knew Jesus, and they saw one guy who seemed to be open. How about you today? Is your spirit and your heart open for people, for you to point people to Jesus? But not only did Philip minister, not only was Philip called out of all these guys, I want you to see these guys as they serve together. The Bible says in verse 22, Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. The principle of two. The serving alongside with other people. 
uh, in our, our American culture today, there's an emphasis on the individual and the personal relationship with God and, and my God, kind of making God in my image, and I have my faith, devoid, separated from any kind of sense of reality of community. And it's the farthest thing that we see from people who are truly Christ followers. People who are truly Christ followers that know God recognize that they are powerful. There is power in two. Ecclesiastes says it like this. Ecclesiastes, can you put that up for me, please? Ecclesiastes says it like this. Two are better than one because they have a good regard or good reward for their toil. If one falls, the other one will lift him Two are better than, together than one. We have a slogan here at City Church. A bunch of us wear a t-shirt. It's called Better Together. And we are better together. When a husband and wife make a commitment to serve in a local church and start to find an area to serve, they're far more effective than just one person. The Bible says that one will put 1,000, two will put, put, put 10,000. When you come alongside and you serve in teams with other people, there's something that happens. There's a unity. There's a, an agreement. There's a camaraderie. There's an effectiveness to your life. And when you're weak and you don't feel like moving on, that other person is there to encourage you, to strengthen you. And so they served as teams. You're new to City Church. You're new to our culture. You're new to our environment. And you sense God doing something in your heart. You sense God doing something in your life, and you see a lot of people serving, and you're starting to recognize that God's maybe doing something inside of you. See, God created everyone in this room with a purpose. God shaped every person that's here today with a purpose. You have a call from God. You have a mission from God, and you will never be satisfied. Come on, you can search, you can chase, you can try to make money, you can try to get up the next step on the rung in your career, but that will never satisfy the way that serving the purpose of God and your life satisfies today. Someone said amen. If you're here new today and you're not currently serving and you haven't gone to Growth Track, Growth Track is your next step. And I want to encourage you, next Sunday after the, uh, after the evening service at 5 o'clock, I would encourage you, be part of a team. Make a difference. And then I want you to look at this next part of this verse here. It says, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Andrew and Philip told Jesus. As I was reading this text, I'd, I'd always thought, I just made the assumption that when Andrew and Philip told Jesus, Jesus immediately invited them to him. But that's not what the scripture says. That's not what the scripture tells us. The scripture just doesn't say anything. It's kind of a guess. And I, I, I was thinking this again. You know, they, they probably did get to meet Jesus. But I want you to hear Jesus' response. I want you to hear the response of Jesus to these Greeks. In verse, in verse number 24, the Bible says Jesus stood before them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You know what Jesus is saying to these Greeks? Oh, you really want to see me? Oh, you really want to follow me? Let me tell you what's going to happen in three days. Let me explain something to you. There is a cost. There is a cost. If you're really going to be a follower of me, if you're really going to come after me, there's going to be a cross. This is what I'm going to do. 
But you know what? You're going to have to do the same thing. You're going to have to be willing to sacrifice your life. As a matter of fact, Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Wow. The sacrifice of our life. The sacrifice of our life. The, the sacrifice of making ourselves of no reputation. Jesus would predict exactly how he would die. Every promise that Jesus made, he accomplished to the T. It took place exactly the way that he said it would. See, Jesus was saying to these people, I'm going to lay down my life. I'm going to sacrifice my life. I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to die in order that you might have life. You know what Christ says? If you are going to have life, you must die. You must die to your sinful nature. You must die to living life for yourself. There are things in your life you must surrender. The Bible calls it repent. It just simply means to change the way that you think about God. Change the way that you think about who he is and his purpose in his life. Change the way. Change the way that you believe. Because the moment that you believe in Christ alone as your Savior, the old man dies. That old sinful nature dies. In Galatians chapter 2, verse number 20, Paul the Apostle expresses it like this. He said, my old self. Everyone say old self. My old self was crucified or sacrificed with Christ. That old sinful nature. My lying ways, my lustful ways, my cheating ways, my unfaithful ways. When I came to Christ... That old man was crucified. It is no longer I who live. I'm not living for myself. I'm not living for my own purpose. I'm not living for my own plan. But Christ now lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Truly, truly, I tell you, I'm going to die like a seed that goes into the ground. But when that seed raises again, life come, resurrection come. Let me tell you today, when we die to ourselves and Christ becomes alive in us, things change. Lives change. Destinies change. Marriages change. Families change. Jobs change. Come on, your children change. And Christ becomes alive in us today. Jesus made himself of no reputation. He sacrificed his life. He died to self. You know, the greatest sin in my life and the greatest sin in your life, you know what it is? It's pride. And we have it. I have stinking pride in my life that must be crucified. Do you know how I know? Because just a couple of months ago, I had something happen. It just, it, that sense of pride just reared its ugly head in such an amazing way. I couldn't even believe it was me. Pastor Glenn and I and Pastor, uh, Pastor Glenn and I went to a, a pastor's meeting. It was in our fellowship, and and the gentleman that had been serving in a, a specific office was was stepping down, and the position was opening. And I had received some texts and phone calls from other pastors in the area saying, "Hey, you're you're the guy. You're going to get elected for this position." And I really hadn't thought much about it. I really I wasn't sure that I would want to do it, but hey, you know, if they ask me, I just I have to serve and. And so I went into this meeting, and I got into this meeting, and I looked at this other pastor friend of mine, and he had stacked the row. He had stacked the deck. He had brought all of his staff with him. 
I remember thinking, there is no way. So the verse, first folk count, comes, and I'm not a smart man, but I recognize when I'm about to lose. And so the first vote came, and I raised my hand. I stood up and said, gentlemen, I, I, I withdraw my name from, you know, from consideration. And I sat back down. And inside of me was pride, stinking pride. That little bit of hurt, just that sense of feeling rejected. And I realized in that moment that Christ wasn't really being alive in me. You see, there is a choice that we make. We must surrender our reputation. We must allow other people to get credited and take the glory. Come on. We must be willing to decrease so that he can increase in our life. That was good preaching there. It's a sacrifice laying down our lives. The second thing that I want you to see that Jesus says, truly, truly, verily, verily, I stand before you. And in verse number 25, look what he says. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates this, his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Sacrifice, sacrifice of your life is death to your old nature. Giving your life, choosing to lose your life, to lay it down, is a choice. As I was processing and thinking through this this week, I realized that when that old nature dies, yes, there's, a, there's something else at work in there. And it's a surrender. It's a total surrender. I, I want to just explain it like this. There are some really good things in your life. There's some really good things in your life. But if you're going to have the greater things in your life, you're going to have to be willing. The good thing might not be wrong. The good thing might be okay. The good thing might be all right for someone else, but for you, you know God has some, something greater, and you have to be willing to surrender that to the Lord. I heard recently uh, of a family that said, we want to give more money to missions, and so we are not going to have cable television. I mean, there's nothing wrong with having cable, but that $200 a month of bill or whatever the heck people pay for cable today, let me tell you, when they chose to surrender that, they were going for something greater. They were surrendering their good for something greater. There are people that have said, you know what, in this season of my life, if I take this career choice or I go this career path or I go this direction, it's going to require more of me, more of my time, more time away from my family, and I'm not willing to do that. I'm willing to surrender that to God. I'm willing to surrender the good for something greater in my life. In the Bible, there was a man by the name of Abraham. He had longed and he desired to have a son with his wife, Sarah. He'd actually been promised by God. And for 12 years, Abraham held on to the promise in faith, believing that God was going to do what he said he was going to do, that he was going to give him a child. And when that child, Isaac, came, God asked him for something. God asked him to surrender his dream, his vision for Isaac, and be willing to sacrifice him on the altar. And the Bible says that Abraham was willing, and God rescued, and Isaac went on to live and became one of the great patriarchs of faith. But let me tell you, there's a surrender that God is calling you and I to today. But here's the deal. The struggle is real. The struggle is real. Look what Jesus says in verse number 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. 
Where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Following Christ, surrendering our life as a choice, seeing ourselves at Christ's disposal. And then look what he says here in verse number 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Jesus was fully God. He was God with human skin on. Jesus was fully God, but he was fully man. And when it came to this hour, to this point, when he was going to fulfill every single prophetic promise of the Old Testament, there was a struggle. And the struggle is real inside of every one of us. To sacrifice our life, to lay down our sinful nature, to surrender our will, to choose the best over the good. There's a struggle. There's a struggle in all of our hearts. There's a struggle in all of our lives. Jesus said, Father, save me from this hour. I mean, he's fully man. He, he's wrestling in his flesh. He, he's wrestling with that reality that in just a few short days, he would hang on a sinner's cross between two thieves. He knew what was about to take place. He knew the beating that he was going to take. He knew the crown of thorns that would be shoved down on top of his heads. He knew the nails that would be draw, driven into his hand. He knew that he would be held up before the whole world naked fully exposed. Father, oh, Father, my soul is troubled. God, this is too great. This is too hard. Lord, what you're calling me today to today to stay in this marriage. God, what you're calling me today to stay in this job and to work with these people that, that I don't like and they don't like me. God, this is too hard to stay in this job, to stay committed to this relationship. God, this is too difficult. There's always a struggle. The struggle is real. But I want you to see Jesus' prayer. No, Lord, this is for the very reason I came. Lord, unless something dies in me, only can something come alive. Father, glorify your name. Father, glorify your name. Our lives, the greatest and highest aim of our life is to glorify him in everything we do. That's the greatest aim. All the struggle, all the challenges, all the problems, all the difficulties that we experience in life were about this one thing. God conforming us to the image of his son so that we can bring glory to his name. So we can be more like Jesus. Struggle's real. 1989, there was a young man that was drafted into the NFL. His name was Dennis Burke. Uh, Dennis Bird, he played for the University of Tulsa. He, he was a star athlete. He, he was an incredible young man. He was very talented, very gifted. And, and in 1989, he was the second-round draft pick for the New York Jets. Over the next four years, he would prove himself on the field. I mean, he was a defensive lineman of defensive lineman. He, a couple years later, he'd won the defensive player of the year. He was a bone crusher. They said he played with fervency and passion and fire. He liked to hit people. He liked to hit people hard. And in 1992, in kind of a one-off play, he was tackling the quarterback, and his teammate came from the side and hit him. Players were down in the field, and after everyone got up and the, the crowd was cleared, his body still lay on the ground. In that moment of that collision, something happened. Something snapped. It was his spinal cord. He was paralyzed from the neck down. 
They hauled him off the field. There was a, just a hush. You know, when you see a player injured like that, there's just kind of like a hush that comes across the, the stadium. And, and over the next day or two, the doctor said, told him what the, what the report was, that, that his spinal cord had been severed and that he would never walk again. So they told him. They, he said, I will ne- you will never walk again. You'll never hold your child again. You'll never be able to move again. This young man had a spirit. He had an abominable spirit. I mean, there was something in him that was determined. And in that hospital room, paralyzed, not able to move, he said, I'm going to get up and walk again. Yeah, right. Three weeks later, three weeks later, he was walking in his room with the help of nurses by the side of his bed. Come on. It's an amazing story. One year later, he would walk out onto the field on the opening day for the New York Jets, and he would be the person who flips the coin under his own power. It was a miracle. I mean, this miracle allowed him to travel, to share the message of Christ. He he was bold for the gospel. He he was a a radical Christ follower. He would share what Christ had done and the, the miracles that had taken place. He'd had a great tragedy, but he experienced triumph. But that isn't the rest of the story. Because in 2016, with his 12-year-old son in his vehicle, he was driving down an Oklahoma road, and a young boy wasn't paying attention, and he was texting, and he swerved, and he kept back, and he lost control of his vehicle, and he plowed head-on into the vehicle that this, young, this, this 50-year-old man was driving. He was killed instantaneously. I mean, this guy, I think he had tragedy. I mean, he had some triumph and some victories. He had tragedy. He had some great triumph. And then tragedy strikes his family again. <laughs> Someone, one reporter said, the loss of life is always tragic and terrible, no matter how you slice it. But the case of Dennis Bird seems like a particular grave injustice. As he had overcome so much adversity, only to have his life lost in a car accident. That's what it seems like to the world. But four weeks later, Four weeks later, his family had buried him. His wife, Angela, is a strong Christ follower. She lives in Oklahoma, and she stood in front of the media for the whole world to hear. See, this young 19-year-old boy was going to be charged with second-degree murder. She stood before the whole world and looked into the camera, and she begged the judge. She begged the judge not to sentence him. Not to charge him with second-degree murder. She said, as for us and our family, we release this young man. We forgive him. We don't want him to carry the guilt and the shame of knowing that he killed my husband. We forgive him today. I'm like, whoa. I mean, you can Google this story. You can actually see her do that. Wow. I mean, this young man deserved the penalty. Come on. He deserved the penalty, whatever it was, whatever the judge and the jury was going to meet out. But there's one person. There was one person who had seen Jesus. Come on, there was one person who knew the power of the healing Jesus. There was one person that knew God and knew the forgiveness that he had given to her. She was willing to forgive. What a triumphal moment for the kingdom of God. What a triumphal moment for the kingdom of God. See, you know why your one must see Jesus today? You know why the Greeks must have seen Jesus that day? Because Jesus is the only one who can heal the hurts of our lives. 
Jesus is the only one that offers hope in a hopeless world. Jesus is the only one that can deliver from life's addictive habits. Jesus is the only one who promised the only path and the true way to heaven. Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one. You know, we're, we're moving down. we got two weeks. In Resurrection Sunday, man, we're, we're believers, and we're in a celebration time, and we're grateful for the grace in our life. But there's that one. There's that 19-year-old. There's that 39-year-old. There's a 59-year-old. There's a child in your household who's your one. And they need to see Jesus. They need to experience Jesus. They need to know his forgiveness. No, they don't deserve it. None of us deserved it. None of us deserved it. But Jesus did it for them. I must be lifted up. Jesus said, I must be lifted up. I will draw all men unto me. I got to go to the cross. I must go, I must rise from the dead because I'm going to draw all men to me. I want you to close your eyes. You're here today. Wow. Jesus loves you. He's here for you.